the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's Wednesday, and I am Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. You're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a radio show dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions. Whatever they might be, we'll do the best that we can to answer them. Life questions are okay, too. Whatever's going on in your heart, we'll do what we can. Here's the phone numbers, 340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you live outside the local calling zone, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can also send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. Um, We'd love to have you do that. If you are driving in your car, the safest way for you to call on what's turned out to be a warm and beautiful day is by using the free KSLR mobile app. You'll be connected directly to the studio producer. Uh, before we get into a few things, let me open the program today with a prayer request. If, if this faithful audience, and by that I mean faithful to pray, uh, we would ask you to pray for Raina. Uh, she is a, um, a young woman who goes to our church. Uh, we love her with all of our hearts. She is currently in, I mean right now, she is in an emergency procedure at MD Anderson Uh, recently diagnosed with cancer, and it seems to be worse than they thought. And we would just ask that you would lift Raina and her husband, Carl, uh, in prayer as the Lord brings them to heart and mind. Uh, These are such difficult things. Um, um, Please, 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 we would ask for your prayers. Well, because it's Wednesday tonight, we're going to be teaching, I'm going to be teaching in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Not a good chapter if your name is Uzzah. But it is um, a really, really important lesson in terms of the the practical application for us as New Testament Christians. That's why this Old Testament uh, book is so spectacular. Uh, First and Second Samuel both. Um, It's just immense in terms of the applications for us. So that's tonight here. Tomorrow, of course, uh, Paula will be live in studio with me on the date day edition of the program. Uh, Ladies, it's a day we set aside especially for you. And all you need to do is is um, give her a call. Tomorrow she'll be here with me, Lord willing, at 4 o'clock. One more time, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question that came in on our mobile app anonymously. Uh, and he or she wants to know, is it wrong for Christians to be wealthy and wear expensive clothes? Uh, anonymous, it is not wrong. Um, um, we have some really wealthy people in our church and they are generous. God can trust them with the money and they, they use their money to bless, um, others. So no, there's nothing wrong with being rich. Now here's the problem. Uh, A lot of times we want to be rich and, and we make choices based on that desire instead of wanting what God wants for us. So money can be a trap. It can be a snare. But being wealthy is not at all 
um, a sin. Uh, in fact, um, if there weren't for wealthy believers who were supporting the work of God, uh, we certainly wouldn't be able to do the things that we wanted to do here at Calvary Chapel, and that would be true of every church. Um, just remember that if, if God has blessed you with wealth, um, it's because he can trust you with his money, so use it for his glory. Um, that's the key to wealth. Now, about wearing expensive clothes, if you're wealthy and you can afford them, no, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, we Christians don't have to take a vow of poverty. We don't have to live um, below uh, some artificial means that's set by somebody else. So it's really, really not wrong. Now, anonymous, if, in fact, you're talking about pastors and their wealth comes from service to the church, then I do believe it's wrong. We pastors are on a pretty short leash. You know, God keeps us really, really close to him. And I think when we sin, Jesus said too much is given, much is required. And it's always, if remember, it's much more is required. We're really accountable. And I think if we who were, who are Christians serving the church, if we took enormous salaries, if we were wealthy, if we flaunted um, our clothing or if we flaunted our cars or those kind of things just because we can do it, well, then I think we've got a real, real heart problem. I think that is an issue with God. So pastors ought to be able to minister to the people they serve. And too often what's happened in our church culture, Anonymous, is that we get um, pastors who think the people are to serve them. And that really is wrong. That's pride. It's uh, uh, just being carnal. And it's really not something wrong. But for Christians, there are really, really wealthy Christians. That's a good, good thing. Um, they support a lot of the work that God does. Uh, but if the money, like the rich young ruler that Jesus encountered, uh, money was the most important thing in his life. In fact, money was his little G-God. So if the desire to be rich, love of money, Paul says, um, those things can be a snare. They can really be a trap. But if you simply are blessed by the Lord, then there's nothing wrong at all with being wealthy or wearing expensive clothes. You know, if we kind of did that same thing, we'd be in the situation where we would probably have a, a sense that uh, all Christians ought to take a vow of poverty or live well below the means of others, and that's simply not the case. Thanks for the question. Here is a question from our email inbox. This one's from Nacho. Pastor Ron, was the young girl with the power of divination in Acts chapter 16 saved after that incident? If so, was her conversion uh, to our faith because Paul cast out the demon, uh, or would she have had to receive the Lord after that event? In a related question, people who had demons cast out by Jesus, apostles or disciples, were they saved in that action because of that conversion? I ask because of what Jesus said about an empty house in Luke chapter 11. Uh, Nacho, uh, in, in the case of the, the young girl with the power of divination, um, we, we're not told. Now, we can infer that she was saved. When, when Paul cast the demons out, she was in her right mind. I think perhaps even the delay, you know, she was tormenting Paul for several days. Uh, finally, he had enough. I think the Spirit of God was waiting until she was ready to receive Christ. But uh, in both cases, whenever demons are cast out, there has to be a subsequent decision to accept Jesus Christ. And we're not told the end of the story in these cases. Um, some become followers of Jesus. We know, for example, Legion, who, who had thousands of demons cast out of him. Uh, he became a follower of Christ. We're told that in the story. But we just have to make a, an educated guess, and our guesses really don't have much value. Uh, I'm pretty confident that this girl with the power of divination, uh, because of the the problems that casting that demon out cost Paul, uh, I'm pretty convinced she converted to our faith. Um, the, the passage about uh, an empty house in Luke chapter 11 says, if they don't get saved, if the Spirit of God doesn't come and live within them, then what happens is the demon comes back with seven demons more powerful than, than, than it was, and then uh, they take up residence, and the, wor the last condition is worse than the first condition. So unless there is a spirit, and in our case, of course, that's the spirit of God, uh, who is ready to take up 
um, residence in in the body, um, then the, the the problems are only, only going to get worse. Not till you remember that Mary Magdalene had seven demons cast from her. So what we've got to understand is that there has to be a replacement. The house has to be full. And Jesus's reference there is that the house will be full with the Spirit of God. So I hope that helps. Thank you, Nacho. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Lance, sort of the opposite of the wealthy question. Is it sin to be in debt? Uh, The answer, Lance, is no, it's not. Uh, Romans says, oh, no debt to anyone except the continuing obligation of love. We have been studying that in our Roman studies here recently. Uh, But that's not talking about material debt. Now, obviously, debt can be mismanaged and debt can become a horrible, horrible burden. And the abuse of credit is is greater than I can even communicate. Um, It is a sin if we who are Christians get into debt to such a degree that we can't serve God. Um, It's a sin to go into debt and not pay your debts. I think we have to understand that very clearly. But in Paul's passage in Romans 12, basically all he's saying is that if you owe a debt, pay it, and then it's no longer a debt. You're, you're making a payment via a schedule. So to, to mortgage a house, to buy a car, if that's the only way that you can do it, uh, is certainly okay and not sin. We have to be careful, however, Lance, to make Jesus the Lord of our finances. And that way we won't get into trouble with our finances. I've known a lot of people who were really called to serve the Lord, to, to do things, uh, go out in the mission field, some to go plant a church. And they couldn't do it because they were in such debt that they couldn't stop working. That is where we get into that area where it can cross over into sin. So uh, it's not a sin to be in debt. Uh, it's a sin to misuse credit, and we ought to do it judiciously, carefully, and, of course, we ought to do it prayerfully as well. Let's go to Austin and talk with Robert on line one. Robert, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron, good to talk to you. Many blessings you. upon you. Oh, hey, so you. I, you know, obviously, um, no like you, I hate to be critical of things I see going on in churches, and uh, but I've got a family member, it's actually my daughter that's attending a church here in Austin, and they're going to be hosting this production called The Thorn. Have you, are you familiar with that? Oh, I, I am not. I've heard of some others that are going around, but I've not heard of that one, Robert. Well, so, I, you know, it's being advertised here on the radio, and I've seen I've driven past the church, and I've got it. But you know, it combines acrobatics and martial arts with the passion, and I'm just trying to, in my mind, conceive what any of that would have to do with, yeah, the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I don't, Robert. I just, you, yeah, you've touched on something that's a pet peeve of mine. Uh, we churches get marketed all the time. Uh, I get constant emails and, and other types of contact from people who want us to promote their movies or their books or those kind of things. And a lot of Christian churches fall into the trap of saying, yes, we were all sort of sucked into the passion. Uh, when I saw it, I was mortified that I had all of our people there. Um, but because it was so successful, people were going to copy it. And, and that's what's been going on. Um, they're, they're trying to create a market for a movie. Um, I, I also don't understand why. Uh, I mean, if you've got a martial arts movie that has a Christian theme, that's one thing. But uh, these are just things that we ought to be careful of. I, well, I, I, I will check. I, actually, I, I will check it out. Sorry, Robert. go ahead. I said I will yeah, check I it just, out. Okay, yeah, I just, you know, my, my, my new... Son-in-law and my daughter are just beginning their journey in faith, and I don't want to, you know, criticize, you know, what they're doing or what, you know, might come across there. You know, I, I don't want to, but I, you know, I just I see things like that, and I've actually looked at the tra- the trailer for this traveling show, and I just, you know, I mean, there's people dropping out of the ceiling and on ropes and martial arts, and you know, a char- a character of the Lord dancing around, and I just don't I don't understand. I, I mean, and I don't know what to say. No. Um, yeah, you know, as a, a concerned dad, yeah, as a concerned dad, you just take them into your counsel and you just tell them, look, as a brand new believer, you need to stay away from the flash 
and uh, and just focus on the main meat of the Word of God and uh, and pray for him. Thankfully, Robert, and this is true for all of us who are a little bit older, um, Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. He begins it. He ends it. He's the one who will carry on the work that he began until the day of Christ Jesus. So um, just just warn her and pray for her. That's about all you can do. And I, I'll look this into this and see if I can get some more information on it. Thank you, Robert. Okay. I appreciate the call Thank very, you. very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. We Christians are so gullible. We're so easily marketed. And churches are looking for almost anything, especially that will entertain the younger crowd in the church. And whether it's your youth group or, or your, your young men and women, you know, we, we, we all know the, the youth are the future. Um, but you know what? The only way to ensure that future is to pour the word of God. And I absolutely loved Robert's heart uh, calling because this is what dads are for, to sit down with their kids and say, um, let's focus on Jesus. Uh, show the trailer. What does this have to do with the word of God? And uh, the, the scary thing for me is that typically when you see those things going on in churches, there are um, churches that are catering to the younger crowd. Uh, we might call them seeker churches, or I call them church light where they're less interested in teaching the Word of God and more interested, unfortunately, in, uh, in just uh, sort of entertaining, uh, making a church uh, an exciting, fun thing. You know, tonight, uh, Robert, I'm going to be teaching in Second Samuel chapter 6, and it is exciting, but it's a warning to all of us. And uh, that's what people need. They need the Word, the Word, and we churches where we ever got lost, how we ever sort of fell away from doing what we're supposed to do, equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Um, we have westernized what churches always intended to be. By the way, Robert, you might take her to Acts, your, your daughter and your son-in-law to Acts chapter 2. Uh, beginning in verse 42, and say, this is what church is supposed to be. This is the model for church. Acts 2, 42, through the end of the chapter, this is the, the design that comes from heaven for church. And then, as I said, pray. Oh, I hate that. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. here's another anonymous question. Do we know how the Apostle Paul died? Anonymous, we don't for sure. There's certainly no inspired um, information that's not dealt with in the Bible. Um, church tradition um, is is pretty certain in some areas. This is one of them. We believe that uh, uh, Paul was uh, beheaded uh, by Caesar Nero, uh, and this would have been sometime in around 68 or 69 A.D., um, um, he was beheaded just a month or so before uh, Nero himself was killed. Um, and, and again, all we know is that's what tradition has taught and been passed down throughout the years. But uh, a definitive answer written by God, we don't know. All we know is that that's how he died. Now, if you'd ask that question about Peter, we would say, yeah, we know that he was crucified. Legend has it that he was crucified upside down, but we don't even know that for sure. Uh, but we do know that he was crucified, and we know that because Jesus told him, after restoring Peter post-resurrection, Jesus told him that this is the way he was going to die. So that's the best we can do. I think so, but we're not sure. Here's a question from Jeffrey, a good question. Uh, an honest question, too, by the way, Jeffrey. He says, I struggle with being humble. I've advanced in my career by being proud and self-confident. Is it wrong if I'm proud of my accomplishments? Um, you know, Jeffrey, uh, every day before this program, we have kids that come in here and pray for the program. About 10 minutes before, before 4 o'clock, a bunch of kids come up. Sometimes it's a handful. Other times it's more than that. Uh, and they like to come in and they like to to uh, read the questions and try to answer them. And uh, the questions have been sent in via email. And uh, they they read your question today. 
And one of the kids, a fifth grader, he said, um, he said, well, no, there's nothing wrong with being proud. But now if you start bragging, then there's a problem. And I thought, what a wonderful distinction for him to make between those two things. There's a godly pride, and of course, there's an ungodly pride. Um, I don't know how you understand humility, but here's the best way, Jeffrey, to understand it. Humility is understanding that apart from God, you can do nothing. Um, I've had a great career as a pastor. I mean, I, I love what I do. But I am acutely aware, Jeffrey, that if I get any distance between me and Jesus, I'm going to blow everything. So I could be falsely proud in what I've accomplished. It would be false pride because God has really accomplished it. And uh, if we understand humility properly, then we understand that, that, that Jesus is the reason that uh, you've been successful in your career. And I don't think you've been successful by being proud and self-confident. I think as a Christian... You've been successful if you have been a Christian for a length of time because of the gifts that God has given you. I think it's an amazing thing to think about. If, if God didn't make you who you were, would you be successful? Would your career advance? If God gave you the gifts to be successful, how could you possibly take credit for it? You know, the Apostle Paul was the greatest of perhaps all men ever used by the Lord. And yet you talk about humility. He said, I'm the chief of sinners, the worst of the worst. He says, I am what I am by the power and the spirit of God. So, Jeffrey, if you're advancing in your career and God is getting the glory, um, if your confidence comes from your nearness to Jesus, those are good things. But if the reason you're struggling is because you're boasting in your accomplishments or you think that your accomplishments are because of what you've done if you've been a good steward over God's gifting to you and, and, and God gets the glory that's a great thing and that's certainly not a sin but the one thing that you want to really be careful of is not touching God's glory don't take credit for anything that God has done and the honest truth for all of us is that without Jesus Christ, we would be able to do nothing. Now, from a worldly perspective, Jeffrey, we could we could appear to be successful. In my life, before giving it to Jesus Christ 27 years ago, uh, I was exceptionally successful in business. Um, Paul and I were very wealthy. Nobody gave me anything. Uh, it was simply a matter of, of working really, really, really hard. And I got all puffed up and carried away with my own importance. And eventually, all of that went away. And when I gave my life to Jesus Christ, I, I saw how spiritually bankrupt I was. And then sort of watched as God rebuilt me. So, yes, you can be proud of your accomplishments, but make sure that God gets the glory, not you. I love it when I see athletes who uh, have won a game. They've done something spectacular, and the microphone's thrust into their face. So how did you do it? Well, first, I want to give all glory to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, there's somebody who understands that they're only fast because God made them fast. They're only able to catch a ball or throw a ball because God gave them that ability. Men or the woman who takes credit for it, well, their success doesn't usually last very long because we're all built to sort of crash and burn. That's the nature of our flesh. So uh, keep struggling with humility. But when you see yourself in the light of Jesus Christ, it's easy to be humble. That's why the Bible says humble yourself so God doesn't have to do it. So you keep struggling with it. You keep looking at Jesus. I promise you, you'll see that he's the one who's made you successful. Thank you, Jeffrey. I appreciate the question. 340-9585. Here's a question from Billy. We're under two minutes in this half of the program. Billy says, why did the devil want Moses' body? Billy, the reason the devil wanted Moses' body is because he knew that if the Israelites ever found it, they would have worshipped it. 
they would have mummified Moses. They would have stood him up. They would have made sacrifices to him. And uh, Moses was nothing more than a servant of God, certainly not a perfect servant either. We all know that. But the devil wanted his body because he wanted that body to be a snare, a trap to the Israelites who would follow into the, the, the promised land. You know, the devil knows a lot. He doesn't know what God knows, of course, but he knows a lot. And he knew the orders, the instructions God had given them to go in and take Canaan. Um, he knew what God's plans were for Israel to occupy the promised land. And he wanted to do anything and everything that he could to stop that. There's a great story, by the way, in the book of Judges about Gideon. Gideon, who was so humble at the beginning, uh, Gideon uh, made an ephod. And that ephod would later be used by um, the, the Israelites. Again, this was a terrible time in Israel's history, but they would actually worship that. So I hope that answers your question. 340-9585. We got Logan holding on line one. Logan, please hold. We'll take you right after the break. 340-9585. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program. We've got 30 minutes to take your phone calls and answer your questions at 340-9585. Let's go to Logan on line one from San Antonio. Logan, thanks for calling. You're on the radio. Yes, sir. Um, I actually have a question. It might be somewhat basic, but how do you differentiate between Old Testament law and New Testament law? I understand that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament and he uh, set us new boundaries and guidelines that we need to follow. But I feel like there is a lot of confusion between, well, that's in the Old Testament, so we don't have to follow it anymore. Uh, One of the big ones that I'm specifically referencing is that people say, well, Leviticus, they said uh, homosexuality is wrong, but uh, everywhere in the New Testament, it doesn't specifically spell that out, such as Romans. And, uh, there's a couple other ones. Um, and they say that's just Old Testament. And I'm trying to find some clarification other than that Jesus just came back to uh, fulfill the Old okay. Testament. Okay, I can help you with that. Thank you, Logan. Great question. Um, I, I hope this makes sense to you. But but the way, the way I've always viewed uh, the difference in the... Uh, commandments of God, Old Testament versus the commandments of God in the New Testament. Um, The Old Testament was a got to. The New Testament is a get to. In other words, we have the privilege and honor of of being obedient. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. So in, in other words, instead of obedience being forced by a law that we couldn't keep, a law that was 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 bound to condemn us because we we simply couldn't keep the law. We now, because Jesus has fulfilled the law, we have the privilege of declaring our love and our faithfulness to him by our obedience. So in the New Testament, having uh, had our sins wiped away, uh, when God says, um, do, you know, flee from sexual immorality, when he says this is the will of God, um, those are things that we get to do. Those are privileges and things that we get to do, and we don't do them under compulsion. Rather, we do them uh, out of a a truly grateful heart. Uh, Paul said, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. So uh, we can make everybody in in this listening audience, Logan, feel really, really guilty by by telling them, you've got to pray more, you've got to pray more. Um, But instead, we should say no. With thanksgiving in your heart, talk to talk to your Jesus. With thanksgiving, ask God for the things that you need. And of course, tempering it with thy will, not my will be done. Now, in regard to the homosexual issue, there is nobody in this world who is honest, who can read Romans chapter 1 and say that it isn't very specific about the act of homosexuality. So these are people that don't know God, they don't know God's word, and they're trying to find excuses for sinful behavior. You know, Logan, of 
the Ten Commandments, just just the basic commandments, not the, the over 600 commandments of the law, just the Ten Commandments, nine of them are repeated in the New Testament. A lot of the principles in the other commandments are repeated in the New Testament as well. So as New Testament Christians, we take special note of the things that God tells us to do. And the reason he tells us to do it is because it's good for us to do these things. That's the way that we can uh, be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Obedience is sort of the trigger, according to Acts chapter 5, verse 32, for the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So only a dishonest person would say, well, you know, Leviticus says homosexuality is bad. By the way, the law demonstrates the heart of God, especially in these laws about the, the things that are an abomination to God. Those things demonstrate the heart of God toward that behavior. As a New Testament Christian, how could we engage in anything that violates what we know to be the heart of God toward something? If God hates pride, we can't say, well, I can be proud because because I'm a New Testament, I'm under grace. No, he's telling us how to live our lives. And part of the problem with some denominations is they get really lost in this grace versus law argument. And, and basically they say, no, just preach the gospel, just preach Jesus, and then other people can work out their salvation the way they want to because we're under grace. No, when you read the Bible, even the design of the books, especially Paul's and Peter's and James and John's epistles, they tell you what God has done, then they tell you how we should respond. So again, Logan, uh, and we've heard this over and over, well, Leviticus, they don't want you to eat shellfish, and they want you to stone your disobedient children, so we're supposed to do those things too. Those are the kind of arguments that are advanced, dishonest arguments that are advanced by people who don't know God, know nothing about God, and have never taken the time to study the Word of God. So, you can dismiss those arguments. So when somebody says to you, well, the New Testament never really condemns uh, homosexuality specifically, you can read Romans chapter 1 and say, okay, I'm going to read this very carefully. What does that mean? And there's no way to escape the clear and direct meaning of that women shouldn't lay with women. It's unnatural. Men shouldn't lay with men, for it's disgraceful. And that's, in context, what it's teaching. And then they'll come up with another problem. You know, one of the problems, Logan, that we've had in our church culture, and this is just sort of indicative of the time that we live, you know, in Isaiah chapter 5, Um, he described the time of the Israelites just before they were judged by God as calling good evil and evil good. Well, we live in that time now in the United States of America, indeed in the world. Um, We no longer feel free to say that's wrong, it's sin. Well, no, it's my truth versus your truth. What we have to understand is that there's only one truth. His name is Jesus Christ and he makes the rules. And when somebody says to you, well, we're under grace, so it's okay for us to do that, then we need to share Jesus with them because they don't know him. They don't know him. And they can say, no, I'm a Christian. I grew up in church. Yeah, but you don't know him. You're not born again. Because if you were, you would understand what God's heart is toward this sin. And you can put any sin in there, not just the sin of homosexuality. And then we tell people, look, I'm not saying this because I feel like I'm better than you or, or or you're worse than most people. I'm telling you this because I want you to be in heaven. And in heaven, Jesus rules. And we only get there by being obedient to him. So a got to in the Old Testament versus a get to in the New Testament. By the way, the only commandment that isn't repeated in the New Testament is the commandment to Sabbath worship, the seventh day that was set apart for Israel and Israel alone. Logan, great question. Thank you very, very much. Here is our next question from... This is anonymous. Why was Abel's sacrifice better than Cain's? Well, uh, I'm sorry, it's not anonymous. I'm having vision issues today. This is from Aaron. Aaron, Abel's sacrifice was better because it was offered by faith. Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks even though he's dead. 
Now, the idea here is that Cain and Abel, and, and lots and lots of time, remember, we've got to fill in the time gaps in, in um, um, Genesis. Um, a lot of time went by. Adam and Eve were in the garden. We don't know how long, but for, for some time before they were expelled, before they had children, when they were cast out of the garden, um, they multiplied and there was family. They would have lived. Cain and Abel could have been 100 years old or 200 years old. We don't know um, by the time this this whole issue of the murder of, of Abel occurred. So here's what we know happened. God told them, starting with Adam and Eve, God told them what offerings to provide and how to come before God with those offerings. And clearly, for as long as they were in the garden, those offerings were given uh, in obedience, given with the right heart. And for some reason, the enemy had an opportunity with Cain, and Cain decided, I want to bring God the work of my hands. Now remember, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Maybe Cain just was disgusted by the blood. Maybe because his brother Abel was a shepherd and he was a farmer. Maybe he decided, well, Abel gets to bring him the work of his hands. I want to bring him the work of my hands. Uh, faith requires obedience. And that's why his Cain's sacrifice was rejected and Abel's was offered. The key that we don't read specifically, but we know is true, is that Cain had been making acceptable offerings to the Lord obedient offerings to the Lord, but he did so not in faith until finally he wanted to do it his way. And every time we try to approach God on our terms, we, we're going to miss out, Aaron. So Abel offered his by faith. Cain was murderously angry, and of course we know that the murder occurred. So I hope that helps. Faith, faith, faith is always the key. It is by faith we're made righteous, by faith able was made righteous. Just like today, by faith in Jesus Christ, you and I are made righteous. 340-9585, if you have any questions, here is a question from Pete. He says, in Acts chapter 19, why were the believers in Ephesus not filled with the Holy Spirit? Pete, this is a common mistake that people make uh, without reading the text carefully. Uh, It says they were disciples. And what we do is typically... Um, typically we equate disciples with believers, but that wasn't what was happening. What Paul did when he arrived in Ephesus was he came upon a group of people who were disciples of John the Baptist. And so Paul noticed something was wrong, and he said to them, uh, have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? That's kind of like me or Paul when we ask people, so are you born again? Well, I'm a Christian. No, but but have you born, been born again? Well, that's what Paul was asking. Uh, he noticed there was something wrong in their conversation, something missing uh, in what they were communicating. And so he said, so let me get to the basics of this. Were, were you filled with the Holy Spirit? And they responded, we didn't know that there was such a thing as the Holy Spirit. Well, then whose disciples are you? We're disciples of John the Baptist. Now, remember, his ministry was a ministry of repentance and preparation. So they had been baptized, a baptism of repentance, but they only had half the story. There was an old radio broadcaster when I grew up named Paul Harvey. And for, oh, it seems like a hundred years, he did a a radio show called The Rest of the Story. Well, the rest of the story is, is what they were missing out on. So what they did was to explain to him that John's was a message of preparation and he was trying to prepare for Jesus. Well, what you don't know is good news. Jesus has come. And then they believed and then they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So they weren't Christians until after they believed and were filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, In the chapter before, uh, the same thing happens with Apollos, who was a disciple of John. And it was, in that case, Aquila, Aquila and Priscilla, most notably Priscilla, who noticed something was missing, and they explained the way of God to them more fully. So I hope that answers your question. 
340-9585. Here is a question from our mobile app from Rich. How much involvement should a believer have in social issue? Does the gospel also impact the injustices that we see in our society? Rich, let me say it this way. The, the injustices that we have in our society will never be impacted apart from Jesus Christ. See, the problem is that we humans are evil sinners. There's nothing good in us, in our flesh. Paul says that in Romans chapter 3. There is no one good, no one who seeks God. And that's why social justice issues... By the way, social justice is a um, um, sort of a conundrum. It's, it's an oxymoron. Um, all you have to do is justice. If you're just, that justice comes from the just giver. And of course, that's Jesus Christ. So the gospel impacts the injustices that we see in our society only insofar as um, the Holy Spirit uh, impacts the lives of people. When people's hearts change, behavior will change. Without the Spirit of God, behavior will never change. That's why the world that we live in is in such a mess now. We, We can't even agree on what is good and what is bad. And so... Jesus coming into a person's heart changes all of that. Um, Should we care about the lost and the hurting, those who are hungry, those who are broken? Should we care about uh, the slave trade, the sex trafficking that we see? Should we care about um, uh, poverty and, and, and hunger and the things that we see every day? Of course we should. But the only way that we can have an impact in those things, the only way, we can't go online and start boycotting uh, people that sell guns. We can't go online and start boycotting people that have a different view of what a family is than we who are Christians do. What we do is we share the gospel. The gospel of God, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, is the power of God unto salvation. So we've got to believe more deeply in our gospel because the only thing that we can do in terms of impacting social issues is help for a minute. Help for a minute. We just got an email here that my producer was reading to me from a a man uh, and his wife from our church who are in San Diego and they're they're serving at this big event, uh, serving the homeless. Uh, we do that here in Texas at the Joy of Jesus, and, and, and we do that with Malta Medical here. We have a free family practice doctor office here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, we've served over 20,000 people in the five years the clinic uh, has been open. Um, but you know what? All the people that get well because we give them medicine, they get sick again. The people that reject Jesus Christ, now lots and lots of people out of those 20,000 have given their hearts to Jesus Christ. I would ask you, who gets impacted? What social issue has long-lasting value? I would suggest to you that it's the social issue of once I was lost and now I'm found. So yeah, we should be concerned about social issues. But first and foremost, that's only going to impact things as we declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I realize, Rich, that we have people that that want to do good things. It makes them feel better. It's why every Christmas, every Easter, we have people that will say, well, I want to give some food to some poor families, or I want to buy some clothes or some Christmas toys. for." And, and there's nothing wrong with those things if your heart is right. But you know what? We, we find ourselves doing those good things at a certain time of year and neglecting all of the needs of the people the rest of the year. That's just backwards to me. We can't help anybody. We can't help anyone if we don't share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. I can give them a sandwich. At Joy of Jesus, we get asked for money all the time by the homeless. They're very clever and they can be very aggressive. And we teach our church that when we're there and they ask for money, I know you're going to feel guilty. I know you're going to want to give them money. But remember, we're like Peter. Gold and silver have I none. What I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Rise and walk. And it's been a really, really successful ministry for a very, very long time. 
and they keep coming back. Yeah, we can give them a sandwich. Yes, we can heal their illness, at least sometimes. But we can heal them for eternity if we'll just be willing to share Jesus Christ unapologetically, unashamedly, just declare Jesus Christ. So, Rich, I hope that answers your question. Here is a question from Edward. Edward says, why doesn't the Bible condemn slavery? Edward, the Bible does condemn slavery in in the strongest possible terms. Now, let me say this. The Bible deals with life as it was in reality at the time the Bible is reporting on. During the time Paul wrote his letters in the Roman Empire, slaves outnumbered free men and women four to one in the ancient world. Roman citizenship was exceedingly expensive. Uh, You had to be born into it. If you weren't, you had to buy it, and most people couldn't afford it. Paul himself was a Roman citizen by birth. But the people that were slaves... Well, that was the life that they were born into, a life they were condemned to repeat. So what Paul does is he tells them, if you're a slave, if that's the position you find yourself in, be a slave for Jesus Christ. Honor your master. He didn't say run away. He didn't say revolt. He didn't say to protest or boycott. He taught them how to live a Christ-like life where they were at the stage of life they were in. Now, it would feel a lot better to us if, if Paul would have said, "Sin is, or, I'm sorry, slavery is sin. It's wrong. Just run away from your masters. We would say yes, but it would have gotten everybody killed. So Paul teaches them how to let Jesus empower them where they are. I'm getting to that place in Romans, Edward, uh, where in the 16th chapter, we're not there yet, but um, Paul, in greeting people, if you read the text, there's a bunch of slave names there. And those slave names, those are people that Paul's commending because God has used them to do spectacular things. The, the little letter, the one chapter letter uh, of Philemon is all about this issue. Onesimus was a runaway slave. and Onesimus had to go back. And Paul encouraged him to do so because that's what God was leading him to do. And yet Onesimus turned out to be a huge figure in the first century church. So the Bible does condemn slavery. By the way, if you look in the King James Version, 1 Timothy chapter 1, there's a whole bunch of sins there that condemn people to hell. Men-stealers is one of them. And that's referring to the enslaving of another human being against their free will. So the Bible does condemn it. At the same time, we have to appreciate how the Bible teaches us to live in the world that we live in, not the world that we wish was. So I hope that makes some sense to you. Uh, We're inside of four minutes, so probably no time for phone calls. Here's a question from Don. He says, where in the Bible can I find out about purgatory? Well, you see, Don, that's the problem. You can't because there's no such thing as purgatory. Purgatory is a Catholic uh, invention. It was created to get people to give money for Catholic building projects. It was created to give a false hope that you know you can you can pray them out of purgatory by the offering of alms and 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 uh, um, maybe your dead loved ones have a second chance. But it is a damnable lie, Don. And we live in a city where a lot of people are trapped in that lie and they're holding out hope, which is really no hope at all. Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed and a man wants to die and then face the judgment. So what we need to do is tell people that there is no such thing as purgatory. It's a Catholic invention. Uh, it is a heresy. Um, you got to choose in this life where you're going to spend eternity. We can choose in this life to serve Jesus so that we can be with Jesus in eternity, or we can choose in this life to reject Jesus and spend eternity in torment. But there is no such thing as purgatory. That's one of the reasons I've had some questions lately, Don, about uh, the authority of the Bible versus uh, church and and, and ancient traditions. Uh, Any tradition of any church 
that is in contradistinction to the revealed word of God is a lie and gives people false hope. So I hope that helps. I think we got time for one more. Here's one from Zachary. He says, who are the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11? Zachary, I would also include Zechariah chapter 4 because the witnesses there, uh, the olive branches symbolically, uh, are are referring to these two witnesses that will occur, uh, will appear rather, uh, in the in the Great Tribulation. Uh, in the first three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. Elijah, we know, didn't die. He was taken up to heaven uh, in a chariot of fire. It would have been a wonderful thing to see. Uh, we also know that Elijah, according to the Old Testament, must come before the return of the Lord. Uh, to establish his kingdom. So that much we know for sure. Now, I'm equally confident that uh, Moses is the other. Now, here's why. Uh, Jesus said the law and the prophets are all about me. Um, Elijah was the prince of prophets. Moses uh, is the standard bearer for the law. And so they're going to be the ones. The law condemns. The prophets point to Jesus. And that's what these two witnesses are going to do during the Great Tribulation. They're going to point to Jesus, and there is going to be a huge, huge, huge revival. Now, of course, we won't be there, but that's what's going to be going on on the earth. Uh, there are some who would say, well, Enoch has to be with him because Enoch didn't die. Uh, but that's an argument from silence, and it's really not an argument that stands the test at all. So Moses and Elijah. Thank you, Zachary. I appreciate the question. Hey, thanks for your call today. Thanks for the questions. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. Uh, Paula will be live in studio with me tomorrow on the day day edition of the program. Ladies, that's your day. Uh, tonight, 2 Samuel chapter 6. Tune in, calvarysa.com. See you tomorrow at 4, God willing. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.